I first met Joel Richardson last year when he, when he came here. I, I got to know him because Greg Parker has had a relationship with him for 10 years or so now. Is that right, Greg? Yeah. So last year when he came, just the initial getting to know him, he's got five kids from 21 to 6 years old. How's that? Okay. So I have no idea how he even is here this morning, but he is. His wife's name Amy, and so we, we love you, Joel. You've, you've so ministered to us. We appreciate, I think what Paul said, he shared the word with them, but he also shared their, his life with them, and you've done that for us. You've allowed us to pray for you and just enter into a little bit of your life. So that was one of the things we wanted to do this time is just to get to know Joel, and he is, if I might say, awesome. We, we so appreciate what he's bringing. A, a real freshness in our thinking as far as, and also a reminder, I, was, I, was, I came to the Lord in the Jesus movement, a huge topic in the Jesus movement was Jesus coming again soon. Now, that may be a waning topic, but it's not a waning truth. He's still coming. Can you hear an amen? He is coming again. And so we're hoping just to see the Lord stir up again in the hearts of his people. That's me, you, all of us. This understanding as best as we can that there are things that are happening that are not out of God's control. There's not one rogue molecule in all the universe. God's in control, but he's working out this plan that we've talked about in Genesis even where he is bringing his son back to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And that is going to be just, a thousand years is just going to be the beginning <laughs> of what we're going. So would you give a warm welcome to Joel as he comes and shares the word with us. Thanks, Kevin. Good morning, I'm Joel and I'm awesome. <laughs> You're fabulous. I used to work with this, uh, this uh, gay designer, and he would always say, Hi, I'm Edward. I'm fabulous. And I was like, I love your self-confidence. Your parents did something right. Um, so fantastic. That, that'll be my superlative for you, Kevin. I'm awesome, and you are fantastic. Let me turn off the Wi-Fi before I start. So good morning. Maranatha. How many people don't know what Maranatha means? So how many people know what Hallelujah means? Hallelujah is praise the Lord. So these were a couple of the early exclamations of the early church. They would say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And then they would say, um, Maranatha, or also um, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. But interestingly enough, Hosanna is very similar to Maranatha. Maranatha essentially means, come Lord Jesus. And so, Hosanna is essentially the same thing like, the one that was promised to come save us, save us, O God. Send forth your promised one to save us. So there was this groan, this cry in the early church for the Messiah to come, come Lord Jesus. Now here's the thing, we're in Calvary Chapel, which is fantastic, it's a Denominate is it called a denomination? It's called a denomination, right? Uh, no, no, we don't use that word. It's a fellowship. What's the fellowship of churches? It is a fellowship of churches that was birthed out of a Maranatha cry. It really was. It was birthed out of a focus on the return of Jesus. But when I survey the landscape of modern American Christianity, so many churches today, in my opinion, so many Christians. We've lost the Maranatha cry. We've got the hallelujah, praise the Lord, but this cry that the early church had, come Lord Jesus, we've lost it. And I won't get into all of the reasons for that, 
Um, but it's my hope, one of the primary burning desires of my heart is that we recover the Maranatha cry of the early church. Paul the Apostle said, all of creation is groaning. It's groaning for the return of Jesus. Like, if the trees and the leaves are groaning, and then what happens is, and I'll just say this before I jump in, you know, I shared with the staff, my whole life I've, I've probably, if I'm to be honest, wrestled a little bit with depression, but sometimes depression and just sadness is kind of a fine line. And as Christians, we kind of go, well, oh, if you're sad, like, you got to rebuke that demon. The joy of the Lord is your strength, brother. Cast that thing out. And I go, okay, I get that. Like, depression is something that, that we, should be, we shouldn't, you know, as believers, we should overcome depression. But sadness, in my opinion, is a fairly natural response to living in a broken, wicked, corrupt system. It says all of creation is groaning. It's sighing. All of creation is sad. And it even says that the spirit within us God himself is groaning. And so if God's groaning, if creation's groaning, it's okay for us to feel a groan, a sadness, because this age that we live in, if I'm to be honest, there's times when I open up the news in the morning and I look at this and that and I go, God, I kind of don't really want to be here anymore. You know, I mean, like, it's getting pretty crazy. Don't get me wrong, I'm a pretty tolerant guy, 20, 30 genders, but we're at 50. No, I'm kidding. But, you know, like at a certain point, it's just like, I'm just like, I can't fathom my kids raising kids in this world. And so my hope and my cry, forgive my, my humor. If you don't get it, it's humor. Um, my hope and my cry is that we recover the biblical, the biblical cry that we're intended to have. Come, Lord Jesus. And so one of the ways that I like to do that is talk about the return of Jesus. And so that's the focus this morning. So I've called the message the untold story of the triumphant return of Jesus. And you go, well, wait a minute. What do you mean the untold story? We all know that Revelation 19 says he's going to burst forth from heaven in the clouds with angels and fire. A sword comes out of his mouth and this sort of thing. Yes, that's true. But that is just a little teeny tiny snapshot of the story that was already completely told, not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, the story of the return of Jesus is thoroughly told so that by the first century, when Jesus and the apostles came along, they already knew the story. And believe it or not, the New Testament doesn't really add any new details, except for his name is Jesus. Beyond that, it's already all there in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at the story. So go to the first slide. The first question, just to sort of kick the discussion off. The question is, where does Jesus return to? How many people know where Jesus is going to return to? First, I'll give you a hint. It's not Independence, Missouri. <laughs> Mitt Romney. So who, who knows where he is going to return to? Mount of Olives. Okay, because we all know that the Bible says that he will descend from heaven and his feet will land on the Mount of Olives, right? Raise your hand if you're familiar with that verse. The problem is, it doesn't say that. Okay, so go to the next slide. Sorry, I set you up. <laughs> I got the mic. Um, Zechariah 14. Let's look at the verse afresh. Behold, a day is coming. 
for the Lord, when the spoil will be taken from Jerusalem, it's talking about Jerusalem, it's talking about the armies of the Antichrist gathered together against Jerusalem, this final, this final assault, this anti-Semitic, racist, demonically inspired hatred of God's people and this demonic lust to possess the promised land of God. What is the promised land? It's the launching pad. It's the platform from which God of heaven is going to fix everything. He's going to end this corrupt, wicked system. He's going to restore all things. He's going to heal everything. It's going to be the end. It's because the end times, by the way, just for clarity, is not the end of the world. It's, the, it's not the destruction of the planet. It's the end of human trafficking. It's the end of the abortion industry. It's the end of sickness. It's the end of death. It's the end of political commercials. It's the end of corrupt politicians. It's the end of all of the things that make us sigh and groan and make us sad and tired and exhausted sometimes, right? It's the end of the corrupt, wicked system, and it's the renewal of all things. And he has a launching pad, a piece of property that he's promised he's going to do that from. So, Satan wants to possess it. So behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will be taken from you and divided among you. I will gather all of the Gentiles against Jerusalem to battle. The city, Jerusalem will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished. Half of the city will go into exile as essentially prisoners of war. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. How, have, how many of you would like to be on the receiving end of when God goes to fight as a warrior on the day of battle? I don't want to be on the receiving end of that. Go to the next slide. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. You see, the part of him descending from heaven and landing on the Mount of Olives is not there. It just says, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. It's actually a general statement. And the phrase there, in that day, it's a, biblically speaking, it's a messianic phrase. It just refers to that time period. It's used throughout the Old Testament. In that day, in that day, it refers to the age of the Messiah. So first, it's a general statement, but pay attention. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split. When will the mountain be split? When Jesus returns, there will be a mighty earthquake. The whole earth will shake. Because ultimately, it's the general resurrection. When the power of God is released to raise Jesus unto immortality, as that happened in the first century, Jerusalem shook. People came out of their graves. I don't understand the physics of it. I don't understand why sometimes when the power of God comes on people, bodies go... You know, like, I don't understand the interaction, the weird relationship between spirit and, and all this, but when the power of God was re released, the earth shook. When the general resurrection happened, the whole earth is going to be a massive earthquake. And at that time, the Mount of Olives will be split. Half of the mountain will move to the north, half to the south. And then it says, those who remain in the city will flee by the valley of my mountains. Now, here's the question. If the deliverer and savior has just come back and landed on the Mount of Olives, why are they fleeing? Who are they? They should be. So the point here is it's, there's a little bit of a problem with the idea that that is his return. When he returns, the mountain will be split, and then they flee. But then a couple of verses, it says this, a couple of verses later, then the Lord my God will come 
and all of his holy ones with him. So he seems to come after they flee. So, and then in that day his feet will stand. So if we read it in this strict chronological fashion, yeah, it seems to say he lands on the Mount of Olives. But if you actually look at it, it's not really that clear. He'll eventually get to the Mount of Olives. And I'm going to argue that he doesn't actually land on the Mount of Olives. He lands someplace else and he makes his way up to Jerusalem. So we're going to look at, go to the next slide. We're going to look at some traditions in the Old Testament where they refer to God or Yahweh coming from Sinai. Go to the first slide. Deuteronomy 33, verse 1 through 2. This is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. So right before Moses dies, he, he gives this prophecy. And he said, the Lord comes from Sinai. And he dawns on them from Seir. Seir is southern Jordan. It's north of Mount Sinai. And he shines forth from Mount Paran, also in the area of southern Jordan. The return of Jesus is always described using the language of the dawn, the rising of the sun. He shines forth from Mount Paran. He came from the midst of ten thousands of his holy ones. At his right hand, check this out, there is flashing lightning coming out of his hands. Now what's cool about this is that Moses did not see Avengers Endgame. This is completely divine inspiration. He didn't read comic books. He didn't grow up reading comic books. He sees a picture of Yahweh, God Almighty, marching forward from Sinai, shining like the sun, dawning, and lightning shooting out of his hands. Now, that's a pretty crazy picture. Now, scholars look at this, and they go, well, this is Exodus language. So they go, it's, we, go we, we know God didn't literally march as a man shooting lightning out of his hands. This is just overly dramatized, poetic license. And then you get a few brave commentators that go, no, this is actually messianic. It's actually refer- it's using Exodus language, but it's referring to Jesus the Messiah, who is God in the flesh, in anthropomorphic human form, marching, who will pour out the wrath of God when he returns. So now let's look at another passage that uses similar language, Isaiah 35. They will see the glory of the Lord. When? When Jesus returns. The majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted. How many, identi- how many needs encouragement? How many identify as being exhausted? Sometimes, that's me. And strengthen the feeble. Say to those with an ancient, uh, anxious, anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come to save you. So the first passage says, for the first time in the Bible, God comes from Sinai. It's very specific language. It's, uh, the word in Hebrew is bo. It means comes, arrives, appears. And here it uses the same language. It's the second time in the Bible where it says God comes. But here he comes with vengeance. He comes with the recompense. He comes to save us. Now go to the next slide. Again, we just looked at, at it. The third place that it appears in the Old Testament, Zechariah 14. Then the Lord my God will come with all of his holy ones. Deuteronomy 33 said, back there it said, he comes with myriads of his angels, of his holy ones. Now, in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle says that when Christ is revealed from heaven, revealed, we will be revealed with him. 
So when he comes, we come back with him. So it's not just the angels, it's also the resurrected saints. Okay, now check this out. Jesus, in terms of his method of interpreting the Bible, he reaches back, we call it the science of biblical interpretation, is hermeneutics. Jesus' hermeneutic was such that he specifically reached back and he drew from the motifs of these three elements, God coming, God comes from Sinai. He appears from Sinai. Second, with his holy ones, with his angels. Again, there are only two passages in the Old Testament that clearly use that language. Deuteronomy 33, Zechariah 14. And with recompense, vengeance, Isaiah 35. And he applies those, that picture, those motifs, he applies it to his own return. And so if that's Jesus' interpretation... I think it should be our interpretation. Go to the next slide. The, the two places, the first two places in the New Testament where Jesus refers to his return, the first one, Matthew 16, he says this, the Son of Man, that's a reference to Daniel 7. We won't get into that. It's a very specific term. It's the God-man. It's, he's, he's divine. If you look at Daniel 7, he's given sovereignty and authority, and yet he's a man. The Son of Man, he's referring to himself, is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he will repay every man according to his deeds. Matthew 25, likewise, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, because his glory and the Father's glory is one and the same, because he is the visible God. God the Father is the invisible God. God the Son is the Aspect of God that reveals himself to us. He comes down. He's coming down throughout the whole Old Testament. He comes down, he eats, he beats people up, and he walks through a wall, right? You know, we don't get it, but then ultimately he takes on flesh and becomes Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of his angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of glory or his glorious throne. That's the throne of his father, David. We won't kind of get into that whole theme, but the point is this. He is the son of David. But here you have the three references in the Old Testament. God comes with his angels with vengeance. Okay, the three places where it says God comes. He comes with his holy ones, with his angels, with vengeance. Jesus takes that and he says, that's talking about my return. So Jesus takes this Deuteronomy 33, this Exodus passage, and he says, that's talking about my return. God comes from Sinai, the Holy One from Mount Seir. He dawns forward from the south, from Mount Paran. So that Exodus route from the south, which I believe Mount Sinai is in modern-day Saudi Arabia, he comes up through Edom, up through Moab, into the Holy Land. And likewise, the return of Jesus actually moves. It has this flow. It is the return of Jesus. It's not. He doesn't just come back from heaven with a magic wand. Everything's new, la da do do No, he comes back with a sword. It's a process. There's a, there's a period of 35, 45 days where the vengeance of God, the justice of God is actually executed in very real-world fashion because God always does things in very earthly, real fashion. He's not a magician. He takes on flesh. He became a baby. He went through the whole process. And when he returns, the, the, the new... Testament agrees with this, but it's the Old Testament that really actually reveals it in incredible detail. His return is the greater Exodus. Jesus is the greater Moses. Okay? 
Next slide. Paul himself also draws from the Old Testament language and applies it to the return of Jesus. Again, nothing new in the, in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 1.7, he says, Jesus is coming back to give relief to those who need relief, to those who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. And that word revealed, it's kind of the Greek equivalent of comes. Because the word come, bo in Hebrew, it's revealed, appears, comes. From heaven, there it is, with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Okay, and then we're going to jump back to other traditions that build upon the Deuteronomy 33 tradition. This is Judges 5. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam. On that day, the leaders took the lead in Israel that the people offered themselves willingly. In that day, and there it is, in that day, when the Lord returns, they will volunteer willingly. Bless the Lord. They're all excited. Hear, O kings. Hear, O princes. And I will sing. I will make a melody to the Lord, to the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, now it's using Exodus language, when you marched forward from the region of Edom. Now the word there, it's past tense, because here's the thing. In Hebrew, verbs don't always have clear tense. Tense is often determined, when the translators get to it, based on context. So what they do is they look at this and they go, well, this is Exodus, so it must be past tense. But the verb there can just as easily be, God, you will march forth. God, you are marching forth. It's actually kind of this ongoing tense. So it's both past, present, and future. So it could just as easily read, Lord, you will go out from Seir. You will march forward from the region of Edom. The earth will tremble. The heavens will drip rain. Yes, the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai, Mount Sinai in the south, before Yahweh, the God of Israel. Habakkuk 3. This is another major Old Testament prophecy that is describing the return of Jesus. Again, using Exodus language, but it's using the language of God in the flesh as a man marching before his people. And this is, it's actually, it's beautiful. It says God comes from Teman. Again, these are all mountains and regions in southern Jordan. Okay, so if you're looking at a map of Israel, the Transjordan, which means east of the Jordan in modern day nation of Jordan, and just north of Saudi Arabia. Mount Sinai is a little south of that in northwest Saudi Arabia, not the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula. If you weren't here Friday night, then grab my book on the table. They're free, by the way, if you want to take one. Um, and, uh, and then he marches up through Jordan on his way to Jerusalem. God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Picture this. This is Jesus. His glory covers the heavens. His praise fills the earth. His splendor is like the sunrise. There it is, the rising of the sun, the dawning of the sun. There it is again, rays flash forward from his hands. Again, Habakkuk didn't grow up reading comic books where his power is hidden. But not only rays, lightning shooting out of his hands, plagues go before him. Pestilence follows in his steps. The wrath of God is being poured out by the Messiah himself. 
He, he stands, he shakes the earth, he looks, he makes the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. And then he points down to Arabia, Kushan, which is actually like Yemen. And um, Yemen is in distress. And the dwellings of Midian, Midian is northern Arabia. That's where Mount Sinai is. The dwellings of Midian are in anguish. So they're terrified. Because the God-man is on the ground, pouring out the wrath of God, marching majestically up from Saudi Arabia through Edom, through Jordan, on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the throne of his father David. And then we get into the weird stuff. Go to the first, first Enoch. Now, Enoch is not scripture. It didn't make it into the canon. There's a lot of weird... YouTube internet stuff nowadays where people are, I don't know, getting bored with the Bible and they're trying to add. All. But it was, very, it was a very important book in the, in the first century. Jesus and the apostles, they would have read this. It was, it was very widely known and read, but it didn't make its way into the canon. We need to honor the voice of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ in terms of this. But it was a very important book. And so here you have, and parts of it, by the way, did make it. That's the kind of weird part. Jude i.e. Judah, Jesus' brother in the book of Jude, actually quotes this passage, and part of it makes it into the New Testament. But so this is what Enoch said. The words of the blessing which Enoch blessed the righteous chosen, who will be present when? During the day of tribulation. So he has a prophecy for those who will be alive during the tribulation. To rem- What's the purpose of the tribulation? To remove the enemies... The righteous, however, will be saved. And Enoch takes up his discourse and he says this, Enoch, a righteous man whose eyes were opened by God, who had a vision of the Holy One and of heaven, which the Holy One showed me. And from the words of the watchers, who are the watchers? They're the principalities. They're the sort of heavenly hosts that currently rule the world. And some of them are fallen and some of them are not. It's kind of a mysterious thing. They're not necessarily angels, but they're like angels. From the words of the watchers and the holy ones, I heard everything. And as I heard everything, I understood it. Not for this generation do I expound, but concerning one that is distant do I speak. So he goes, look, I have a prophecy, but it's for a people who live far in the distant. Concerning the chosen, I now speak. Verse 4 through 7, check this out. He says, the great holy one, that's God, will come forth from his dwelling and the eternal God will tread from there upon Mount Sinai. So Enoch goes, God is going to come from heaven and he's going to land. This one actually says it. He will land on Mount Sinai. He will appear with his army. That's pretty cool. He will appear with his mighty host from the heaven of heavens. All the watchers will fear and quake. (laughs) This is funny. And all those who are hiding in their bunkers with their beans and their bullets in the ends of the earth will sing. It doesn't say the beans and the bullets, but... It's kind of inferred, just kidding. All the ends of the earth will be shaken, trembling with fear, and and will seize them, the watchers, unto the ends of the earth. There will be judgment on all. Go to the next verse. With the righteous, the Lord will make peace. Over the chosen, there will be protection. Upon them, there will be mercy. They will all belong to God. He will grant them his good pleasure. He will bless them all. He will help them all. Here's the part that Jude quotes that makes its way into the New Testament. Behold! He comes with myriads of his holy ones 
to execute judgment on all, to destroy the wicked, to convict humanity for the wicked deeds they have done. The proud and the hard words of the wicked sinners have spoken against him. Jesus comes back to put an end to corrupt politicians, to put an end to those who make a living in human trafficking, who make a living killing the innocent, the most, the most precious, innocent little lambs that this world has to offer, who make money slaughtering them. He comes back to put an end to wickedness. Okay, so that's an amazing prophecy, but there it actually, Enoch says it, he says what all these other verses infer. All these other verses have God marching from Sinai up through Edom. Enoch comes right out and says, he will tread from heaven, land on Mount Sinai, with the inference that he then marches again as the second exodus. And then there it is, Jude 14 through 15. It was about these men that Enoch, in the set. so Jude validates that Enoch actually prophesied this. So Jude validates that it was the real Enoch all the way back there, seven from Adam, that saw the fact that the promised one would come forward from heaven with all of his angels. So even among the early righteous, when Moses comes along and, and does Deuteronomy 33 and talks about God coming from Sinai, they already knew that that was the promised one. They already knew that the promised one himself actually was God. So this is a, you know, we kind of look back at the early Old Testament believers. We reject evolution, you know, the idea that we evolved from cavemen. But then we kind of have this idea that the Old Testament believers were like spiritual cavemen. You know, me no understand. But like they actually had a very solid theology of the coming of the Messiah, that he would be the divine one that would come forward from heaven to crush the head of Satan, to undo the damage done in the garden, to give us relief from all of our toil and pain. Like, they had a really good understanding of the gospel because that's why Abraham, it says he believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. He actually understood the gospel. In the New Testament, it says that Abraham had the gospel preached to him. You know, they were not ignorant, dumb cavemen. They actually understood a lot more than we give them credit for regarding the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah 63, this one really kind of brings it together. Isaiah is in Jerusalem, and he's looking down toward Edom, and he says, who is this? Marching up, coming, there it is, coming from Edom, from Basra. Basra is another name for Edom, with his garments stained red. Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? And this individual, this, again, in human form, says, It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. And Isaiah responds, But why are your garments red, like someone who's been stomping grapes? And then he says this, and this is incredible. This is Jesus. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. Now, what he means there, it's not that he's all alone, because you go, wait a minute, it says he comes with his angels. He's saying it's not Jesus and the IDF. It's not Jesus and the American special forces. It's not Jesus and the coalition of the willing. It's Jesus and his army alone. From the nations, no one helped him. He accomplished victory himself. He says, I've tread in the wand press alone. From the nations, no one's with me. I trampled them in my anger. Who? His enemies. This is Jesus trampling his enemies, squishing them like grapes. I trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. Why? For the day of my vengeance 
and the year of my redemption has come. That's ultimately, look, why do we turn the other cheek? Why do we defer justice to the day? Because there is a day of justice coming. If there's not a day of vengeance and a year of redemption, if there's not a time when the just judge will come back and execute justice, then turning the other cheek doesn't make any sense. It's just, make up a word, it's wimpism. (laughs) Um, Christianity is not wimpism. We defer justice to the just judge who will come back and execute justice. The Lord says, wait patiently, it will come. Sometimes we see justice in this age. Oftentimes we don't. We will see it. We will see justice. And the response to that is, Lord, have mercy on me, right? And have mercy on my enemies. Open their eyes. Give them a spirit of repentance because no one wants to be on the receiving end of the one who is stomping his enemies like grapes. Jesus is clearly the deliverer warrior. From an Old Testament perspective, from a early church perspective, from the perspective of Jesus and the apostles, before the New Testament was written, they understood the Messiah was coming. He was a warrior. He was a deliverer. Psalm 102, 13 through 16, and then verse 19. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is the time to show her favor. The appointed time has come. The Lord looks down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth. Why? To hear the groans of the prisoners and to release those condemned to death. Israel will be invaded, and it says they will be taken as exiles. Not all of Israel, but the majority of the current state of Israel, according to the scriptures, during the time of Jacob's trouble will be taken as prisoners of war, as exiles. Many of them will, be, will flee and be given a place of safety in the wilderness. Many others will be taken as prisoners of war. And he says he will look down from heaven and he's say, I'm coming back to set them free. And then we, as, as evangelical American Christians 2,000 years later, we kind of do the little, little jig and we go, Woo! Yes, Lord, you set me free from my sugar addiction. Psalm 102. And, and I go, yeah, that's cool. He did set you free from anger and drug abuse and this and that and all those things. But sometimes the verses that we quote, we don't realize they're literal. He comes back to set people from prison camps from, as prisoners of war. And all that principle is there. But it's, just, it's amazing how we appropriate passages and we just kind of spiritualize them and apply them to ourselves. But it's talking about him coming back as the Messiah to deliver his people Israel from prison camps. Many of the passages. And yet we, you know, we sing them. And that's okay. I'm not, I'm not picking on that. But it's important to know the actual original context of the passages that we're citing. Again, this theme is consistent throughout the Old Testament. Zephaniah 2, 3 through 5. The Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. The Messiah is going to come back and deliver those that have been exiled from the invasion of the Antichrist back to Jerusalem. Joel 3, verse 1. Behold, in those days and at that time when I will bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. Jesus himself will be setting the prisoners free, pouring out the wrath of God, plagues and pestilences, delivering the prisoners. It's, there's like an incredibly complex but beautiful picture of the return of the Messiah. There's so much more texture to it than just Revelation 19. Revelation 19 is just a summary, a little snapshot The Old Testament fills out so many of the details. Ezekiel 39, 25, Now I will bring back the captives of Jacob. Have mercy on the whole house of Israel. Right? Psalm 68 is one of the 
biggies. It's one of the biggies. Psalm 68, 4, I'm kind of skipping through a few sections. Sing to God. Sing in praise of His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds. Jesus comes back in the clouds. That is, Jesus is the cloud rider. Rejoice before Him. His name is Yahweh. He leads forth the prisoners with singing. He's not just setting the prisoners free. He's setting them free, and they're bursting forth into song, and he's leading them. So it's a procession, and they're singing. He's pouring out the wrath of God. Oh, God, when you went out before your people, oh, God, when you will go forth before your people, when you march through the desert, through the wilderness, there it is, the Exodus language, the earth shakes, the heavens are drip rain, same language that was back in Judges 5. At the presence of God, Sinai is moved at the presence. The word there is panim in the Hebrew. His face, he's present. At the face of God, Sinai is moved, the God of Israel. And then you have this theme, and again, it's very clear in Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is mind-blowing, and it talks about this procession of God. Go to the next slide. The Lord gives the command. The women, so there's women here as part of this procession, they proclaim the good tidings. They are a great host, and they're yelling, Ha ha, kings of armies flee. You guys thought you were so tough, but guess what? The deliverer's here, and now you're running away. I don't know that they're going to have that mocking tone. There, there was this thing when I was a kid. I, I went down. I'm, I'm from Boston, the other side of the continent, and um, I went down to the beach, and this was before I got saved. I was this little long-haired, you know, little pot smoker. And we went down to the beach, and this was a town called um, Humarok. And the Humarok football team was there at the beach. And we were just these stupid little potheads sitting in the sand. And all of a sudden, I looked up, and there was like 40 big dudes surrounding us. And they're like, somebody said you called us. And we're like, we didn't call anybody anything. And they're like, you calling us liars? <laughs> you know, so it was like one of these deals. And so they were like, you better get out of here now. And so we all was like, okay, you know, like. And uh, so we started walking away. And I just remember there was these girls going, uh-huh, you wimps. <laughs> you know, I was just like, this is just humiliating. So that's kind of what I picture is they're like, kings of armies flee, stupid hippies. No, just kidding. Then it says this. I love this. They have seen. Some translations say, we have seen. We have seen your procession. It's the procession of God. The procession of the Messiah. The parade. The march of Jesus. We have seen your procession, O God. The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. From From Sinai, through Edom, to Zion, up to the throne. The singers went before him. How many of the music? See, there's something here for everyone. The worship leaders are singing, going. It's like something out of Lord of the Rings. This magnificent procession. He's pouring out the wrath of God. He's setting the prisoners free. And the worship leaders are going before and they're singing. The, ma- the musicians follow after them. And among them were maidens playing Timbrels, which I guess is like a tambourine. So maybe they're actually the hippies. I don't know. But you've got the tambourine players in the back, the singers in the front. They're singing. There's a little bit of something for everyone. If you're the, if you're the hunter-warrior, there's the blood and all that. If you're the hippie, there's the singing. 
There's a little bit of everything. It's magnificent. The ransomed of the Lord, Isaiah 35, verse 10, the the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. It's the, this theme of singing permeates so many of these passages. Once you understand this story of the procession of the Messiah, all of a sudden it's everywhere. You go, oh my gosh, I never realized this passage is talking about the return of Jesus. This passage is talking about the return. Of, this is, and it's like, it's everywhere. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gla- I love this. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Overtake them. You know, it's like, I hate to use this analogy, but again, I was a former stupid drug addict. The first time I ever took acid, sorry, you know, I took it and it's like, it's been half an hour, nothing. I better take two more. You know, all of a sudden it kicks in and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, something just overtook me and now I'm on a ride that I can't stop. It's like that. It's like, but except it's not drugs, it's gladness. And joy will overtake us and replace the sighing and the groaning. I'm looking forward to that day. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. They will be a thing of the past. Everlasting joy will be our crown. God has ascended, Psalm 47, ascent, the ascent going up to Jerusalem. God has ascended amidst, not just singing, shouts of joy and the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God. I love this. This guy's just flipping out. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is king of all the earth. Sing. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns. God is seated on his holy throne. Amen. Amen. Psalm 118. And then he comes up to Jerusalem. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through. I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous The righteous one and the righteous shall enter. Psalm 24. Again, he's coming up to Jerusalem. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. He's going into Jerusalem. Who is this King of glory? He's not just Jesus of Nazareth. He is Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, the ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. It's going to be a party. And then Zephaniah 3, verse 14 through 15. Not only are we singing. It says, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has finally taken away your judgments. He has cast out the enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord is now in your midst. Look at this. You will see disaster no more. Yahweh your God is now in your midst. We're not just closing our eyes and singing and trying to picture him. We will see him with our glorified, resurrected eyeballs. We will see him. He is in your midst. He is a victorious warrior. Now look at this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over us with singing. Not only are we singing, but he is singing. Not only are we singing to him, we will hear his voice rejoicing over us. He's going to be partying it up as well. And then finally, we have you know, the enthronement of the son of David on the throne of his father David, and there is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I know some theologians say the marriage supper takes place in heaven, 
Scripturally, I go, it seems to me like it takes place in Jerusalem. Go to the first verse, Isaiah 4, 4 through 5. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst, by what? The spirit of judgment. He's going to purge Israel by allowing them to come to the end of her strength, to let them go into exile, because that's what he does. He breaks us in order that we can humble ourselves and come to him, right? How many of you just were prospering, doing great, life was awesome, and you go, I think I'm going to repent and get baptized. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. It doesn't work that way. He tends to bring us into a place of crisis, and he's going to do the same thing with Israel. And, and so through spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, he purges the sinfulness of Israel. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over all her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, the brightness of a flaming fire by night. It's the language of the Exodus. And over all will be a glory, will be a canopy. And the word there in Hebrew is chupa. It's wedding language. The chuppah, you know, when you have that canopy at a Jewish wedding, it says over all of Zion will be the wedding canopy. And then finally, the last passage, Isaiah 25, likewise, says the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet, a dinner banquet for all the peoples where? On this mountain, on Mount Zion. And it says a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow and refined aged wine, He will swallow up death for all time. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It will be said in this day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited. He has come to save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice in his salvation. So when Jesus comes along in the New Testament and he says, Blessed are all those who are invited to the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's referring back to Isaiah 25. When he says there's going to be a big feast here on this mountain and the mountains, you know, so these are all references that they would have understood. So the reason I I think this is important is because the wedding feast is not just for his church. It's ultimately for Israel. It's for Israel who then repent and through a spirit of burning, the spirit of grace and supplication is poured out on them. And in the process of being delivered, they repent and turn to him. And then we all go up together with Israel, grafted in one unified body, one people, as Jesus is enthroned on the throne of his father David, and then we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's, that's how I see it scripturally. Again, forgive me if that offends anybody. Um, it, it really doesn't affect anything in terms of you know, rapture doctrine and this sort of thing. It's just the idea that we celebrate the marriage supper in heaven while the Israel suffers the wrath of the judgment of God Um, I go, the wedding is for them in the first place. We get grafted in. Stupid heathen, we get to be part of it by grace. Amen? Amen. So with that said, um, I I have a dear friend from Iran, and um, he leads the underground church there, and he tells this story where, you know, he grew up in the church, and then he backslid. He became this this uh, drug dealer down in San Francisco, and, you know, he was still trying to pretend that he, you know, belonged in church and everything. And one day, one of his friends just said to him, he goes, Mansoor, he goes, did you know that when Jesus comes back, he is going to throw the most amazing party that you have ever seen? And he's like, really? That's in the Bible? He's like, yeah, because this guy's putting on raves, right? And he goes, I don't think you're going to be invited. 
And he goes, what? You know, and he kind of opened up this concept of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the fact is that we're all invited. We're all invited. The, the invitation has gone out to everyone, but not everyone's going to be there. We're going to only be there if we accept the invitation. So I love this picture. I love the picture of the return of Jesus. I'm excited. My heart burns for the day when all of the things that make us groan will come to an end. But I want to leave you with this appeal. If you're someone in the room who has never given your life to Jesus, you've never said yes to the invitation, you've never accepted the invitation, or if you're in the church but you've never really made that commitment, or maybe you've made it sort of outwardly but you know in your heart there's still issues, I'd like you to raise your hand right now. If there's anybody that says, I want, to be, I want to be at the wedding supper. I want to be at the feast. Is there anyone in the room just go, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to risk not being there? Good, we'll all be there. If there is anyone, you can go to the tables afterwards and talk to folks. There's folks that will pray with you and so forth. So with that said, I'm going to turn it over to Kevin, and uh, you can be dismissed to get your kids, or not until Kevin isn't. I have no doubt Joel has us thinking this morning. Lots of scripture, which we love, and I don't know where you're at in the, in the continuum of trying to figure this stuff out, but it's so vast and so huge because it's God. So I'm going to continue just to encourage you as myself also uh, that we really have been given this revelation of the Word of God as a means of drawing us to Himself where He can then transform us by the power of His Holy Spirit. And the motivating factors, obviously His love, His mercy, His grace, but the motivating factor when we think of life and what we're doing here is because we are being prepared for a kingdom. And so... How I long to see that kingdom and how I long to have been responding to God in such a way that he can change my heart here and work on me here. And so a lot of questions come up, a lot of things, even when uh, I was with Joel and Greg and I'm sitting listening to these guys and thinking, man, I'm kind of ignorant. <laughs> you know, it's just like all these things that they're, these new things that I'm, I'm looking at, continuing to look at, because the word of God is new all the time, all the time. So I think it's really, really important that we have open ears and open eyes and a willingness in our hearts to look at God's word and say, okay, let me be a Berean. Receive the word with all readiness of mind and then search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And the scripture is packed with prophetic things that God gave to us in order to spur us on to love and good deeds and preparedness. Would you say amen to that? Joel, we love you. We appreciate so much the things that you brought for us this morning. So as the band uh, leads us in a final song, would you just stand? Let's do this. To, let's stand together, and then I'll, I'll come up, and we'll just pray to close it.